0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6. And the guys have some Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get you one of those. It's marked at Matthew 6 so that you can follow along with us. You can keep that Bible as well. as our gift to you. A little over four years ago, a man who God had blessed with much wealth and who had used much of that wealth to further godly purposes, wrote a letter that made its way onto the Internet. And I have a copy of that letter. I'm going to read a portion of it. He says in this letter, In 1972, Dr. Jack Hiles and I started Hiles Anderson College Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, God used Dr. Hiles, the faculty of Hiles-Anderson College, and our graduates to start and build what became the fastest growing churches across America and throughout the world. He has used Hiles-Anderson College more than any other Bible college in America. With this teaching and preaching of Dr. Hiles, he built and left behind $70 million worth of buildings and property. He says, then, I would like to share what the Holy Spirit is doing through my life, says the author of the letter. As of December 31, 2008, 10,300,000 people have been saved, mostly through works that I have supported in the Philippines and in Mexico City. Each week I receive a fax from the men supported there showing the results from the daily personal soul winners that I support financially at approximately $500,000 per year. He says, I have helped build 10 Bible colleges. I have helped build 900 churches. I have given over $35 million. And then he says, I've never known nor read of two men. He being one of the two. I've never known nor read of two men that God has used to bring more souls to Christ. And it goes on like that. Now, we are rightly, I trust appalled at the overt pride contained in such statements. But Jesus says to us, to us, I want you to catch that, what we're going to read in just a moment is written to us. And Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now why is Jesus issuing this warning to his followers at this particular point in what we call the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's because in chapter 5 and verse 20 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that your—that that is you, those of you that are my followers, my disciples, your righteousness must exceed that of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We saw several weeks ago when we looked at that passage, chapter 5 and verse 20, that Jesus did not mean that you have to be more meticulous in your external righteousness than they are. No one could do that. It would be impossible. But rather, unlike them, for whom righteousness was only external, your righteousness is to be internal as well. That the things that you do are to flow from a heart that's consistent with those acts. So in verses 21 through 43, we're to not only avoid external sins like murder and adultery and divorce, that is divorce on unbiblical grounds, we saw when we looked at that passage there are biblical grounds for divorce, but we're to not only avoid external sins like murder and adultery and divorce and vengeance, but we're to, Jesus says, avoid internal sins that lead to those actions anger and lust and selfishness and hatred. And then Jesus summarizes all of this in the very last verse of chapter 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here's the potential problem for us. When we start to make progress in our Christian lives, obeying what Jesus says in both action and in motive, our sin can easily cause us to admire how well we're doing. Jesus has explained in, verse, in, in chapter 5, this is what you're to do and this is the kind of approach you're to take. And the very moment we start to make progress in doing that very thing, our hearts are sinful enough that we can start to admire our progress. And rather than, than remembering that it's only by God's grace and only for God's glory that we've progressed at all, a subtle pride takes root which, if it's not arrested, will only increase. And to avoid that sinful tendency that all of us have, immediately after Jesus says at the end of chapter 5, be perfect, he then warns, be careful. Do what I've said in chapter 5, but now be Very careful. Be careful yourselves. And he applies this warning to religious duties that his followers perform. Whatever those religious duties may be, and he gives some examples. Things like giving, and things like praying, and things like fasting. So in verse 2 of chapter 6, So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And then in verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And then down in verse 16, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You see, dear friends, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, fellow disciples, our sin is so perverse that it can cause us to engage in the holiest of activities and still taint that action by sinful motivation. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. And that's what we're going to see this morning together. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, thank you for your word. and Thank you for the sword that it is that cuts deeply to bone and marrow to the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Oh, Lord, already we are convicted at the words from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. And Lord, as always, we need your aid. We need your aid to understand. We need your aid to apply. And Lord, we need your aid to believe. And we most definitely need your aid to perform. So, Lord, once again, we ask you to grant what you command. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this dealing with religious activities, things like giving and praying and fasting, may seem beneath what you thought you learned from Jesus as we looked at chapter 5 together over these last many weeks. True religion is of the heart and not external activities and religious stuff. Christianity is about relationship and not religion, we say. But hear this, friends. While our relationship with the Lord is more than external obedience, it is certainly more than that, and Jesus has made that profoundly clear in chapter 5. It is a matter of the heart and stemming from the heart. Our relationship with the Lord is more than external obedience, but it is not less than external obedience. It is certainly not enough to simply perform religious duties and to do it well and to do it meticulously and then think we're right with God. And that's why Jesus said in chapter 5 and verse 20, your righteousness must be more than that. It must exceed the external obedience of the religious leaders. But now in chapter 6, Jesus assumes that we will be involved in religious activities. Nothing he has said removes the responsibility to obey God in our actions, including religious actions. Now, I say all of this because there is a mindset in our day that says, in effect, I don't need church. I have a relationship with God in my heart, and after all, that's what's most important. I want to beat on that for just a, just a bit, and then we'll move on. And I don't need to spend a lot of time, I assume, because you guys showed up at church. But maybe you got dragged to church, or maybe you've had that nagging thought in the back of your mind. You know, why do we need all this religious stuff? You know, why all the the singing and why you know the giving and the praying and all of that? Can't I just worship Jesus in nature and worship Him privately without having to come to some particular place? To be with other people in order to do that. Or perhaps, if you haven't thought that, you've certainly heard it from others. A statement like that, I don't need church, I can worship God on my own. Statements like that are often accompanied by things like, I don't believe in all this man-made religion. Well, I just want to remind you, friends, that throughout the Bible, it's replete both explicitly and implicitly with the notion that church is is God's idea. And the things that we're doing here on the Lord's Day are things that God has prescribed for us to do. Every piece of what we're doing, including what I'm doing right now, publicly proclaiming the Word of God to God's people. Gathering together for the purposes of learning and praying and giving and singing and remembering in the observance of the Lord's table. These are all things that God himself has commanded. And that's why Jesus says in these illustrations he uses, when you do these things, not if you do these things. He assumes you will be engaged in this kind of religious activity. When, not if you give, and when, not if you pray. And he expects, and further, he approves of those external actions But, of course, they must flow from the heart, being performed with the right motivation. So in chapter 5 of the three-chapter Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, Jesus gives the moral demands of being a follower of His. And now in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, He gives the religious demands of being a follower of His. Chapter 5 was the moral demands, and now in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, the religious demands. And I have an outline for you as each week in your program. If you haven't pulled that out as yet, I encourage you to do that and follow along. We're from this portion of Matthew chapter 6. We'll see four things. First is this, beware of the danger of hypocrisy. Beware of the danger of hypocrisy. Again, verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, what is this hypocrisy? If you want a word, one word, that explains what hypocrisy is, it is this, pretending. Hypocrisy is pretending. Or you could say hypocrisy is is acting. And that's because the Greek word that's translated hypocrite in these verses is Hippocrates, and it comes from the world of theater, where actors in a play would wear a mask as they played their part. The actors were called hypocrites. So Jesus' warning is against religious acting, religious pretending. And that's why the title of this message at the top of that outline that you've pulled out, if you look there, it says, Now Playing in Churches Everywhere. Because we are all subject to the temptation to play the part and to act, and that's why Jesus is giving this warning again to us, to his followers. But he's not saying that they only pretend to do these acts of righteousness. They actually they actually do them. They do, in fact, these hypocrites, they do give and they do pray and they do fast. So in what sense are they pretending? In what sense are they acting? In what way are they being hypocrites and playing a part? Religious hypocrisy is pretending to be God-centered when, in fact, we are man-centered, self-centered. Religious hypocrisy, hypocrisy is acting, pretending. And religious hypocrisy is pretending to be centered on God when, in fact, I'm centered on myself. So instead of giving your money and focusing the gift on God and its use for His glory, we do something to bring attention to ourselves and thereby rob God of His rightful praise. Jesus said of the religious leaders in John chapter 5, You accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. And Jesus says of them later in John, they loved human praise more than praise from God. And remember, the Bible is consistent throughout that there is only one in the universe who is worthy of glory and worthy of of praise. And to the extent that we do anything to detract from the praise of God, we are in effect robbing, stealing God of that which belongs to Him and to Him alone. And that's why Isaiah 48, the Lord says through the prophet, I will not yield my glory to another. And friends, there are all kinds of illustrations of how this can happen outside of the religious realm. Let's go outside the religious realm because that will make us feel better. But think about you know, charities that have fundraising events. And then you have sponsors and you have advertisers and you have celebrities who show up at those things. Now, I'm very glad that the good work, presumably, of the charity is going forward and they're raising the funds that they're raising for this presumably good purpose. But the truth is the advertisers get something out of that, right? And the truth is the celebrities get some notoriety out of that. And Jesus is telling us, and we are going to see, that we do our acts of righteousness because our reward does not come from people and does not even come from here. And Jesus is very adamant to say that what is done must be done for me, must be done for the Father, must be done for God. For example, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, anyone who gives you a cup of water, now notice this, a cup of water how? In my name. You see, that cup of water or... or, or Benevolence that a church may do, that our church will do. We need to be very careful to make sure that people understand this is done in the name of Jesus Christ. And to Him be the glory. For what He has given to us, and as He has given to us, so now we give to you. Religious hypocrisy, mixing what we do for God with a desire for praise for ourselves, is a very clear and present danger. And so our Lord warns us of it. And he also illustrates what kinds of things we can demonstrate this hypocrisy with. And so I say secondly in your outline, not only beware of the danger of hypocrisy, but be aware of the deeds of hypocrisy. Be aware of the kinds of deeds that can be hypocritical. Now in Jesus' day, there were three primary signs of piety primary signs that one had a relationship with God, and they were giving to the poor and praying and fasting. And Jesus deals with each of those three in this passage. And I say in your outline, then, that it is quite possible for us to give hypocritically. We can give hypocritically. Verse 2, So when you give to the needy, Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, in the first part of your Bible, the the Old Testament, giving for the needs of the poor was often commended and commanded by God. Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Now, lends to the Lord like God needs something from us. Of course, that's not what that means, but what it's saying is God will hold that in store and reward you. Perhaps not in this life, but there is reward for those who obey the commands of God. And then Proverbs 29, the righteous care about justice for the poor. And as I did last week and as I do from time to time, I'm just going to make a one-line statement and then move on so that I don't get shot, but... Passages like this should inform your political views. Christians care about the poor. Believers care about the poor. Now, it says nothing about how best to care about the poor. Those are policy issues. Those are political issues. But this kind of principle from Scripture should inform each of us as Christians about the kinds of things that the Bible tells us to care about. Now, there were scheduled times at the temple when trumpets would blow, and they would signal the time for the giving of alms for the poor. Ostensibly, this was for the purpose of calling the poor to let them know, now is the time that you can come and receive the gifts. But it became a show in which the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would march proudly to the sound of the trumpets so that all could see who it was that was doing the giving. And that's why Jesus says, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Now bragging, like I read earlier in that that letter, is one form of this kind of trumpeting. But then there are others, and in religious circles, naming wings of the building after you because you gave the money for it. So let me just tell you now, if the Lord has us put a wing on our building and you give the money for it, your name doesn't go on it. We we don't want to violate. We don't want to violate things like this. Now, after you're dead and gone, as a as a memory of someone who was faithful and an encouragement to those going forward, we might put your name on as something like that, but not because you gave it. And there are times when philanthropic institutions or individuals will say, I will give this, but here's what you have to do. We're very, very, very grateful for the grant we were able to receive that many of you know about. If you don't, you want to ask me about it, I can tell you, but this half of this room was put on with money that we received from a, a Christian foundation, and we are very grateful for their largesse. I've, I've always wanted to say the word largesse, their Generosity. And we're, we're very grateful for it. But one of the stipulations, you know, we, to sign it, to get it, there were several things you had to do. You, couldn't, you, you had to use the money for the purposes for which it was given. You couldn't use it for political purposes. They had about eight or so of these. But one of them was you had to hang a picture of the benefactor in a prominent place in the building. And our building committee had many discussions about what we consider to be prominent places <laughs> in, the, in the building where we could hang it you'd be surprised at some of the places that were considered as prominent places. In our cafe community area, there is a, a picture uh, of the benefactor who, who did that. And he is now gone. And that may well have been something that those after him implemented. Whatever the case, all of it, if done by us, for us, to be self-centered on us, violates what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that you don't, are not to have someone blow a horn for you to call attention to yourself. And you're also, Jesus says, not to blow your own horn. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, in an effort to carry out the spirit of what Jesus is saying here, I've been very gratified from time to time when I've had a brother or sister contact me about some way to get a monetary gift to someone within the church who who had a need. Now, they're having to let me know about that, and so it's not completely secret to anyone, but they didn't want the individual receiving the gift to know that they were somehow or feel somehow beholden to them. And so they used a third party. And this is someone trying to carry out the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. That we give not in order to have then praise heaped on us or to have someone beholden to us, but simply because it's the right thing to do and is pleasing to our Father. Now why does Jesus say, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing? If you were with us back when we looked at chapter 5 in verse 39 when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, give him the the left also. Well, that's because, or the left cheek, give him the the other also. That's because most people are right-handed. So that's why he singled out the particular side of the face and that's why he singles out. Don't let the left hand know. The assumption is the left hand's not doing it. The right hand is because most people are are right-handed. The idea here is this. Not only are we not to tell others, we're also not to make a big deal of it, hear this, to ourselves. Not letting the right or the left hand know. And do not pat yourself on the back for your profound humility in keeping it from others. Did you hear that? (laughs) So, you know, I did this thing in secret. I kept it from others. You know, what a great guy I am. All kinds, then, of applications could flow out of this for us. You do a good deed, in this case, a monetary gift. We don't congratulate ourselves for keeping it from others. We don't make a big deal of it to ourselves. We don't even really keep track. Now, you might practically keep track for tax purposes in our tax system, but but really the idea is do it and forget about it, friends. Give it and go. Do it and then God will do the remembering. And at the judgment seat of Christ, and the Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, friends, there should be people who come figuratively, but if there were people who were able to come to us at the judgment seat of Christ who would come and thank us for things that we've long forgotten about. And then they could tell the tale of how God used that and how God was glorified through that. And in order for this to happen, then we have to lose the idea that I give in order to get. You know, those great theologians, the monkeys, said this, I thought love was more or less a given thing. It seems the more I gave, the less I got. What's the use in trying? (laughs) Do-do-do-do. But we don't give in order to get. And what's the use in trying? God says there's a reward beyond here. And that's the reward that you're to care about. Not only does this apply in giving, but in relationships. Relationships that seek reciprocity are selfish. And you know, people do that. I have friends because I help you and you help me. I get you a deal at the place I work, and then you get me a deal at the place you work. Now, it's all fine for people to do, but that's not the purpose for relationships. And I know people who keep track of that stuff. What do we say? We say things like, I what? I owe you one. Hear this hypocrites are not giving, they're buying. They're actually making a purchase. They're purchasing something. They're purchasing prestige. They're purchasing a favor in in the future. They're not giving. They're buying. And we're all in our culture accustomed to getting what we call a return on investment. But friends, there are times where it is good for us to simply give for the sake of giving with no strings attached. And that's why in Acts chapter 20, the Lord Jesus is quoted The Lord Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now we're going to look at hypocritical prayer in a moment. But this is a good time for me to point out that with all of these, Jesus is not condemning doing these in public. The truth is it would be impossible to receive offerings in the church as the Bible tells us to do if we were forbidden from being seen giving. So Jesus is not here absolutely forbidding being seen in the act of of giving. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do what we did earlier, and the Bible commands us to do that very thing. It would be impossible to pray in church, as the Bible indeed commands us to do, if we were indeed forbidden from praying in public. So one commentator has said it this way, it is not wrong to be seen giving, but it's wrong to give in order to be seen. It is not wrong to be seen praying, but it is wrong to pray in order to be seen. It's not wrong to be seen fasting, but it is wrong to fast in order to be seen. So be aware of the deeds of hypocrisy, hypocritical giving. Here's another. We can not only give hypocritically, we can pray hypocritically. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the closet door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We see an example of this kind of prideful praying in a story that Jesus told in Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed. Now, I want you guys to notice. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. We're going to go on and, and read what Jesus says. But here's a guy praying about himself. You say, well, I mean, who would pray about himself? We'll see the way this guy prays about himself. I just want to say here, friends, audit your prayers. Let's audit our prayers a bit together. And as we we think about the way we pray, think about whether or not you're praying conscious more of yourself and more of the other people than you are about the God to whom you are praying. And I would say to you, if you're afraid to pray with brothers and sisters, if you're afraid to pray when we have our community groups in homes, if you're afraid to do that, I'm asking you this question, what are you afraid of? Let let, let me state it more accurately. Who are you afraid of? And I would suggest to you that much if not all of that is the fear of man. Maybe they'll think I sound dumb. And God's answer to that is, who cares what everybody else thinks? You're praying to the Lord Jesus. So, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, Jesus gave this parable. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself God, I thank you that I'm not like other men robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I wonder what the people there thought about him and his prayer. But apparently his attitude was, who cares? I'm praying to God. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As Jesus gives this instruction about how not to pray in verses 5 through 8, He then goes in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5, all the way down to verse 15, and he tells us how we should pray. And we're going to look at that next week, because that is the famous disciples' prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. We'll look at how to pray next week. But here Jesus is saying, this is how you don't pray. And I want you to know today, and we will see again next week, that every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. Every misconception in the way we approach God in prayer is first because we have a misconception about God Himself. For for example, we believe He is irrelevant. If in fact we pray to the crowd, now none of us would say God is and mean God is irrelevant. But that is that is in fact what we believe. That in fact is what is underlying our prayer. If in fact we pray for the crowd. Or, like the Pharisees did, or Jesus is saying we can have a false belief about God that issues itself in the way we pray if we believe that He can be influenced. Not only might we believe He's irrelevant, but He can be influenced. So we try to manipulate Him with our, with our words or with our intensity. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. We see examples of this in Scripture, and we see examples of it in our day. First of all, in Scripture. You remember the contest between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. In 1 Kings chapter 18, here's what the Bible says The prophets of Baal called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar that they had made. And then it says, They shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. But there was no response. No one answered. But you can think of contemporary manifestations of this idea that I can somehow badger God. If I say it enough times. If I repeat it enough times. So we have heard the phrase as a form of penance. Somebody might have to go and do 50, what? The priest will say, do 50, yeah, Hail Marys. And say it over and over again. But, friends, God cannot be influenced. He cannot be manipulated. And if we pray in such a way, it is saying something about what we think regarding what God is like. And Jesus says, do not pray in this way, and do not pray in a way that suggests you believe that God is not only irrelevant, or that he can be influenced, or that he is ignorant. Verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So, when we pray, we do not pray to inform God. We're not telling God how bad it is down here. God knows all about it. And so we come to God and we come to Him with how, how bad it is, is affecting us. And how, Lord, I need your aid and how I'm completely dependent upon upon you. And so we can give hypocritically and we can pray hypocritically, Jesus says. And then we can, in your outline, fast hypocritically. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, When you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, this idea of fasting is something that Jesus' first followers, the, the apostles, uh, uh, apparently would engage in. I only say apparently because the religious leaders asked Jesus why they didn't wash their hands and why they didn't fast as, as others do. So even for them, it was not apparently something they did often. But then in the early church, we have examples of Acts chapter 13 that says Paul and Barnabas were sent off after the church had fasted and prayed. They placed their hands on them and they sent them off. So you find this practice in the book of Acts, and it is never mentioned in all of the letters of the New Testament. And that is why, then, it has not become a prominent practice for us, but it is a practice that we, that we can engage in, and it has biblical precedent to it. And the idea is for us to be reminded of our absolute dependence on God as we seek His will in our lives and seek His will in some effort that the church might be undertaking. But all of that can be done hypocritically if it is pretending, Pretending that it's done to be God-centered when, in fact, it is self-centered. Now, I don't want to beat on our Roman Catholic friends anymore. I'll just, I've already mentioned the Hail Mary thing. I'll just say this. Y'all are familiar with a practice at Lent called Ash Wednesday? And it just seems to me that putting a symbol on your head that you've given something up for Lent violates the very spirit of this very passage. So, beware of the danger of hypocrisy. And be aware of the deeds of hypocrisy. And then quickly, be aware of the cost, thirdly in your outline, for hypocrisy. In these verses, we have Jesus saying, they have received their reward in full. At the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 5, and at the end of verse 16. Those who do this kind of hypocritical pretending receive their reward in full. Now the Greek word that's translated reward was a technical term used for commercial transactions and it meant this, to receive a sum in full payment and to give a receipt for it. So Jesus is saying, you've done your thing, you've got your receipt, you've been paid in full. And what were you paid by? You were paid by the praise of people. The very thing that you sought. And so Jesus gave this to them as a warning that this is all you are going to receive as any kind of reward. The idea is that man's praise is all the hypocrite is going to receive. He's been paid in full. He's gotten all he's going to get in the fleeting moment of prideful satisfaction that he received from his hypocritical act. We lose the pleasure of God, friends, when we take the reward from people rather than from Him. Reward is something taught in the Bible. Reward is okay as long as the reward is found in pleasing God. And the Christian always has return on his investment in the mission of God. And we may not see the results here, but God, of course, does. And we can all receive the greatest reward possible where Jesus says, At the end, when you come into my kingdom, for those who have followed my instructions, I will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our reward. Now, some people have taken these commands to extremes to say, well, people aren't supposed to know the good deeds that I do, and therefore, if people thank you or encourage you in what you do, you should immediately respond to that in some pious way well, praise the Lord, or deflect it from you. But it is okay for people to encourage one another in the Lord's work. In fact, the Bible is, has many examples of that. If you look at the end of the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, almost without exception, he mentions people, and he says, these people helped me in this way. And they're memorialized now in the pages of Scripture for 2,000 years. So it's okay to encourage one another and it's okay to acknowledge and thank others for the encouragements given. But it is never okay for us to do what we do for the praise of others. And then lastly, be aware of the answer for hypocrisy. The answer for hypocrisy. And what is it? Instead of doing what it is we do so that people will see our progress and people will think well of us, And using subtle ways in order to let people know how often we read the Bible, how much we pray, how devoted we are, instead of that, the answer for hypocrisy is this, remembering that you have a relationship with your Father in heaven. Now, how do I know that that's the answer? Because both in verse 1 and in verse 8, Jesus reminds us of the fact that it is our Father who is the main player in all of this. In verse 1, he says, If you do these things, you will not receive reward from your Father. In verse 8, he says, It's your Father who knows what you need before you ask Him. And we need to remember, dear friends, that every moment of every day, we are the children of God and we have a relationship with our Father. And Jesus has said to us, that your Father will withhold no good thing from you. If your fathers on earth know how to give you good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father not give good things to those who ask Him? And Because we have this relationship with our Father, and we look forward to pleasing Him both now and seeing the smile of the Savior in the future because of our relationship with the Father. Because we have that, We can forego. We don't need the praise of men now. And to the extent then you work and you seek the praise of men, hear this, it indicates a deficiency in your relationship with God. If God is your Father, that is truly all you need. Now I say in the take-home truth, Christians then act for the pleasure of God first. Now, I've used that word act. It's kind of a double entendre. We're not hypocritical actors. But in fact, we take action. And the actions that we take are for the pleasure of God first and foremost. Lord willing, they benefit other people. If you preach a sermon, it is for the benefit of God first and foremost. But hopefully it benefits other people. If you pray, it is for the glory of God, first and foremost. But those who hear, hopefully, will be blessed by that as well. If you give, it is for God, first and foremost. But hopefully, others will be blessed by that as well. Friends, do we need the Holy Spirit in order to restrain our sinful impulses? Oh, my goodness. Because Jesus is saying, even my disciples, even those who are doing well in the things that I've instructed them in, always have the temptation to take the credit to themselves and to have hearts that wander from me. So let's ask God to help us as we close. Father, thank you again for these convicting words from the lips of the Savior. We thank you that indeed we have a relationship with you. You are Father, we your children. We thank you that because of that relationship we have everything we need. And so we can say with the songwriter, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, thou always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Lord, help us to be people who have hearts that resonate with that truth. As we serve you day in and day out. For your glory and the good of your people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.